This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus, episode 658. This week, we welcome Michael Menz and Rob DeMallow. They're going to give us their unique perspective on industrial hygiene and IEQ. But before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They are the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget about after the show, we continue the discussion on afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org, Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com, TSI Inc., TSI.com, Sunbelt Rentals, SunbeltRentals.com, April Air, April, AIRE.com, Healthy Indoors Magazine, HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. I'm glad to report that Victor Cafaro from Virginia was first to identify four Pulitzer Prizes as what? Poet Robert Frost, dramatist Eugene O'Neill, and dramatist and biographer Robert Sherwood have in common. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, March 18th, 2022, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in the precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IQ Radio trivia question. What do actors Paul Gleason and Steve McQueen have in common? Back to you, Joe. All right. So today we've got Rob DeMallo. He joined the Indoor Environmental Concepts Group as their vice president and partner in November of 2020. He holds a Master of Science degree in industrial hygiene and over 30 years of experience in the industrial hygiene and environmental health and safety industries. Prior to joining IEC, he was the Senior Vice President of Laboratory Services and Business Development at EMSL Analytical in Cinnamonson, New Jersey, where he spent 25 years coordinating and implementing expansion strategy, business development, and overseeing the laboratory technical operations. Michael Menz founded Indoor Environmental Concepts, IEC, in 2011. IEC provides industrial hygiene and IEQ services out of their New Jersey headquarters. Mr. Menz is a certified industrial hygienist and EPA Pennsylvania licensed asbestos building inspector and management planner and a certified hazardous waste material manager. He's extensive experience teaching asbestos lead and hazardous waste operations courses. Prior to launching IEC, Mike was the environmental health and safety manager and radiation safety officer at EMSL Analytical in Cinnamon, since New Jersey. Back to you, Joe. That's a tough city, Cinnamon. I think it is. Right? <laughs> did I get it right, guys? Help me out here. Yes, you did. Oh, Cinnamon. All right. Well, welcome, gentlemen. It's great to have you. I, you guys worked together back at um, EMSL, and now you're back together again. I'm wondering what you see in the, um, you know, in in the landscape. That uh, first, I guess, Mike, you started this company back. Well. It's, 11 years ago now, um, what did you uh, see as far as the opportunities and why did you go out on your own? Well, you know, I, I graduated Villanova in 87 and, and as a science major, uh, I tried to actually fall into the laboratory work, but the infamous what came first, you know, I had no experience. So I felt like a lot of people into the world of asbestos, uh, became an asbestos consultant, 
which then led to the lead paint and the indoor air mold stuff. Um, so you know, having worked at EMSL, it, it really broadened my horizons in the wide spectrum of industrial hygiene instead of the very limited scope of asbestos and mold and lead. And uh, it really showed me the international landscape. Uh, and even though I was there as uh, you know, a, a trainer and a presenter, I deep down missed project-based industrial hygiene practicing. So uh, I enjoy you know, meeting the people, seeing really cool sites and facilities and, and helping people out. So uh, got called back into, uh, into the practice. I assume business has been pretty good for you. It's been nonstop. Um, you know, I, I left EMSL to rejoin full-time industrial hygiene practicing in June of 2019, and it was just pedal to the metal. Um, when COVID-19 hit in March or yeah, March 2020, things were very, uh, you know, anxious for myself as everyone else in the nation and globe. But uh, four or five or six weeks later, it went into COVID-19 mitigation. Uh, so we never missed a step, a lot of ventilation assessments, COVID-19 screening, COVID-19 training. And then I would say by the summer 2020, all the classic industrial hygiene work came back also because that would be you know, essential to maintaining the, the health of the nation. You know, So it's been nonstop. It's been wonderful. Rob, you, you joined in, uh, what, 2020, I guess, uh, actually late 2020. Uh, what made you decide, hey, you know, this is a good time to go back into, uh, back into the field, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks for having us. We appreciate uh, bringing us on to your great show. Uh, so I started in uh, consulting back in New York. I'm born and raised in New York, five years uh, doing consulting, industrial hygiene, asbestos, lead, mold, indoor air quality, and then I joined EMSL in 95. And after 25 years, I said, hey, let me uh, take on a new challenge. I always loved the field, and I definitely learned a lot at EMSL, broadened my my knowledge base, and I wanted to bring that to the uh, field and apply what I've learned in industrial hygiene. And Mike and I I actually go way back. Mike was previous at uh, Cintertech as an owner. And I was one of his uh, main contacts at EMSL. So Mike and I went back 25 years before that. Uh, So we know each other and I have great respect for Mike. So it was just made perfect sense for us to team up and uh, work together. And we're having a blast. And as Mike said, we're pretty busy. So we work hard and we play hard and it's so far so good. Well, Rob, you've seen a lot of trends come and go during your time at EMSL and and other uh, places. Tell us a little bit about how you see the lay of the land right now when it comes to industrial hygiene and IEQ. Sure. So um, as we all know, a lot of our business is regulatory driven. So, you know, there have been some changes to our regulations, which always helps, you know, the new silica standard came out uh, where OSHA lowered the, uh, the PEL for uh, respirable crystal and silica 2017 for the construction industry, 2018 for general industry. And that, you know, stimulates business. And then uh, believe it or not, COVID has really, uh, I think, heightened awareness with uh, indoor air quality and increased ventilation and filtration. So that, that's been a positive. And we're seeing a lot of, a lot of new heightened awareness with lead, you know, the, the lead in the drinking water, certainly at Flint, Michigan, brought everybody's attention back to lead. And now we're seeing a lot of new uh, regulations coming in for lead uh, in settled dust for um, assessing hazards in, uh, in residences where um, cities are actually tying in the, the landlords getting their, uh, renewing their licenses to be a landlord to rent a property regardless if there's children age six and under, uh, in order to renew that license, they have to do lead sampling. So we're dealing with a lot of landlords and property management companies uh, because of these uh, regulations. And they seem to be, it's kind of like copycat, you know, Philadelphia passed the the rule in uh, 2020. And it seems like it's being adopted in more and more uh, localities, including New Jersey, that's coming in uh, June of this year in New Jersey. So it's a lot of new trends. That's interesting. Um, 
how are, uh, tell us a little more about this, this regulation, because I'm not familiar with it. And I'm wondering, what are they looking at uh, as far as a, a level of lead, a allowable level of lead? That's kind of changed a little here recently. Um, where are they having you sample and, and what are the allowable levels? Uh, whoever wants to jump in is fine. Okay. So there uh, we're doing basically a visual inspection to ensure that the um, paint is in good condition. Uh, we're not supposed to sample if there's cracking, peeling, chipping uh, paint. Uh, if, if that's the case, then that turns into an RRP project where they have to do paint stabilization. But if everything looks good, we can proceed with uh, dust sampling, which is a wipe sample uh, from the floor and sill of one common room and each bedroom, and then one control field blank. So the levels that we're using are, uh, they've been lowered to 10 micrograms per square foot for a floor and 100 micrograms per square foot of lead in a windowsill. So they're not composited. You're doing a, a floor and a, a windowsill. And, and how many samples do you end up doing in a, in a building or in a, let's say an apartment, a two, three bedroom apartment? Depends on how many regulation. bedrooms. Go ahead, Mike. So the, the regulation requires the common room, which is generally accepted as the living room, and then each bedroom. Um, so, so they could be four more, well, let's say three yeah. or four samples. Um, how's the pricing going? I haven't done lead in so long. I remember it was fairly expensive, then it came way down. A, a bulk sample was, you know, less than 10 bucks. How's the pricing now for dust samples? Well, as you just mentioned, it, it, it really debate. Everything's based on turnaround, you know. So one True. of one of the um, real curveballs in this Philadelphia regulation is they've had this regulation for years for only apartments occupied by children. They recently, as Rob just mentioned, it's every every rental, regardless of children being present or not, needs it. And the real bear is these things are now occupied and trying to get people that are renters to come clean their house thoroughly to get down to those post abatement levels is, we'll just say, a challenge as an understatement. Um, they, they, no one can really understand the minuscule amounts of lead that will fail these. So, you know, we are very thorough in trying to emphasize you got to make sure that paint is in good condition and you got to clean the dickens out of that place before we show up. Now, the tenant does the cleaning or the owner has some? Somebody. <laughs> I'm confused yes. on that one. <laughs> Not my job, you know. We, we advise the landlord that they should have it professionally cleaned. Uh, most of them just do it themselves. Um, as Mike said, you know, it's largely inadequate, but um, they really need to do the cleaning is so important because of uh, unfortunately we had years and years of dry deposition of leaded, leaded gasoline, especially in urban areas like Philadelphia. Right. And then unfortunately Philadelphia had, I don't quote me on the number, but like 30 smelting operations in the city of Philadelphia. So there's a lot of lead. I mean, we, we wear booties, our technicians all wear booties going in. You really have to be um, very scrupulous with your, you know, hygiene, changing, changing your gloves, uh, because 10 micrograms per square foot of a floor is really hard to pass. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Remediation contractors have a hard time passing that. Um, that's a that's a pretty stringent requirement. Do you do you see this happening? You said New Jersey is next in line or is that did I mis misunderstand? No, you're correct. New Jersey's next in line. Uh, we all of a sudden we got a whole bunch of calls out of Norristown, Pennsylvania. We did a little research. So apparently they passed a, a similar law. There's uh, many counties in Pennsylvania that are now adopting this rule as well. So yeah, it's starting to catch like wildfire. Um, that's definitely obviously a trend that we see coming. Do you know if this is happening anywhere else in the country? Or is it just kind of, I know Baltimore always had a big problem with lead yeah. as well. Is it happening down there as well? Or do you know if anywhere else is adopting this type of regulation? I'm not aware of Baltimore, but I did see somewhere in the Midwest. I think it was um, Indiana or Michigan is passing similar um, rules for, they call it lead safe certification, requiring to putting the, the onus on the landlords. 
Wow. We're going to have to keep an eye on that, Cliff. And we'll, we'll, if yeah. you guys could give us a link to the Philadelphia law and then maybe the pending sure. legislation in New Jersey, we'll put that in Cliff's blog because that's something I, I didn't know anything about. And I'm, I'm very interested in it. Let's go to another topic that um, kind of fell off the, the radar for a long time here, and that's asbestos and, and asbestos sampling. It's, it, it never went away. Um, I remember I started in 1986 or 87 doing asbestos uh, inspections and, and management plans and stuff like that. Um, and back then it was probably the number one thing that uh, industrial hygiene companies did, at least in my area, made a whole bunch of money. I know EMSL made a whole bunch of money with uh, TEMs and uh, people bringing, I, I remember driving samples from Pittsburgh to, to, to EMSL so that we could get results and get schools open back up. Then it all kind of died off. You know, you didn't see as much of it. I think a lot of it's been removed, but I'm wondering what you guys are seeing when it comes to asbestos. And then if we could talk a little bit about um, the dust sampling that, that actually kind of was the impetus for this show. Well, Joe, I'd say asbestos is still the number one task for any industrial hygienist. You know, Rob and I are very much enjoying our collaboration at IEC because we have the capabilities and know it all to do high level stuff that we usually fight for when a cool project comes in, but day in and day out, we're doing asbestos and mold. You know, they, they pay the bills, you know, when a precious metal catalytic converter job comes in, we, we kind of like draw straws to see who gets the cool stuff, but day in and day out, we're inspecting buildings to find the asbestos prior to renovation or demolition. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that's, you know, we try to think separates us from, you know, our, you know, colleagues and competitors is they don't understand, you know, the EPA set up this framework where each state then does what they want. You know, so New Jersey and New York are miles ahead of stringency versus Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, though, you know, they will not issue a permit without an asbestos investigation. So we get weekly, daily phone calls um, to come out, do asbestos inspections write them a report so they can get their permits. And again, it's, it's not just limited to the, the urban cities. It's these smaller towns are, are coming up with that also. Um, mm. But it's day in and day out. And, and, you know, one of the pictures I sent you, yeah, a lot of it has been removed. But when I was an asbestos instructor, I'd say it's the easy stuff that was removed. <laughs> you find the hard stuff that was left for the next guy. But I <laughs> stopped making land and, you know, we have, we're running out of land. So it's time to revisit these old buildings. And, you know, Philadelphia is going an enormous, what do they call that gentrification where they're tearing buildings down and throwing up new buildings for 800,000. So it's, it's daily. It's not going away anytime soon either. Interesting. Now, one of the reason I, I think I first contacted Mike, I, I saw, on the catalyst, a discussion about uh, asbestos and dust. And I, I thought that was fascinating. In fact, John, I think we have some, some slides on this, um, how, you know, you've been involved in doing sampling of dust, which wasn't a big thing back in, in the day when I was doing this back in the eighties and nineties, it was mostly, you know, bulk samples, air samples, uh, dust samples have become more prevalent, but, I don't know that there's any regulation. Can you walk us, one of you walk us through where we're at with this? And the reason I, I think it's so important for our listeners is a lot of our listeners are restoration contractors or they do mold remediation or they do, you know, inspections for mold and, and indoor environmental quality. And um, asbestos kind of gets in the way or sometimes is inadvertently disturbed and we're wondering how we uh, determine whether or not there's a problem in that building. And I think that's what this dust sampling is all about. Um, so maybe walk us through this. I think, Rob, you were very involved in development. Were you part of this ASTM standard? I was on the committee, but I was not one of the primary authors. Um, but I was heavily involved with the implementation of settled dust sampling as part of uh, being under contract with the EPA. Uh, for the World Trade Center and the Libby Montana project. So EPA, and I'm kind of jumping to the end here, So, but EPA adopted the settled dust approach for um, risk assessment versus air sampling. And that's, let's go back to the beginning. So we all have our asbestos 
regulatory numbers that we know and love that we use every day, right? Greater than 1% in a bulk sample by PLM is a definition of an asbestos containing material. Uh, PCM, 0.01 fibers per cc is an acceptable clearance level. 70 structures per millimeter squared for TEM for an AHERA sample, the average of five samples. Uh, none of those numbers are health-based standards. They're arbitrary. So that's where the frustration comes in, where most asbestos practitioners really don't want to utilize settled dust sampling, i.e. microvac or wipe sampling, because there's no regulatory numbers to, to use or compare with. And, and I understand that, but as practicing industrial hygienists, we should be able to you know, make these assessments based on these numbers. And, and this is what we're trained to do. So uh, the numbers that you see on the screen are from uh, Jim Millette, Steve Hayes. They put out a book, uh, Settled Dust. It was a great book. If you don't have it, I suggest you go out and get it. Um, they, they did a study nationwide. I'll try to condense it where they did cell dust sampling in many buildings across the U.S. that um, had asbestos presently, that never had asbestos, and had asbestos and was removed. And they did all the sampling, compared the data, and they developed these um, numbers, these benchmark numbers of 1,000 structures per centimeter squared, meaning it's low, uh, 10,000 structures per centimeter squared, which means it's, it's a medium, pretty much baseline. That's, that's an average in the, in the U.S. And anything above 100,000 is indicative of an actual asbestos fiber release. So back to the EPA, they actually, and I was involved in this, where they used the 10,000 number and halved it to 5,000 as a margin of safety. You know, so unfortunately, it's not real high level science here, but it was good enough for uh, what they wanted to do. And there, thereby 5,000 structures per centimeter squared was used as a precedent for the World Trade Center uh, test and clean program and also for the Libby Montana um, remedial response. So any properties that had asbestos levels above 5,000, they use that as the benchmark to clean those areas as an asbestos project. And the reason why we're so, um, you know, we really want to push the settled dust is that not a lot of folks really believe or understand that a TEM air sample, as good as TEM is at a, as identifying asbestos and, and seeing small fibers, they are lots of false negatives. They, they especially passive air sampling, you could have a million structures on, on the surfaces of a room, take a passive TEM air sample and find nothing. Uh, so if you wanna find asbestos, settled dust sampling is, is the way to go. Uh, just you know, know how you're gonna use the, the data. It, it's not giving you a risk number, it's giving you potential for exposure. Okay, and this is a TEM sample? Yes, most definitely this is TEM analysis, whether it's a, a microvac sample or a wipe sample. Okay, and we'll get into that a little more in a moment. But Cliff, I think you had a follow-up. Yeah, I, I did, Rob. We were talking about uh, World uh, Trade Center, and, and I, you know, I'd seen some data um, from, if I'm not mistaken, I, I suspect it was from this, this project as well, where they were doing two things. I guess they were removing asbestos, and they were also... Uh, doing some cleanup uh, for suspected dioxin and furion. Was, was that the same project? Yes, the World Trade Center, um, they implemented a lot of uh, contaminants of concern. Right. Um, and, you know, while I was at EMSL, I managed that contract and it was asbestos, metals, um, silica, man-made vitreous fibers, i.e., you know, the fiberglass uh, category. And, and then they did do uh, dioxins and furans, and that went to another lab. Correct. Okay. Interesting. John, let's go back to those slides and go to the next slide on that. Okay. Um, so you, you kind of covered this here, the dust sampling analysis plan for Libby. Um, lower Manhattan indoor dust. EPA will clean a building again over 5,000. Let's go to the next one. And this, I, I wanted to just show people that haven't seen it. This is how you do this. This is what you consider microvac. 
That's correct. That is a microvac uh, sample. Uh, there are pros and cons to each uh, sample collection technique. Uh, we like to use microvacs on um, surfaces that are non-porous. Um, I'm sorry, porous. And then porous. the white is better for the non-porous. Uh, we use microvac here because it's a pretty dirty environment. Uh, the microvac uh, tends to get lower results based on studies and our, you know, our uh, knowledge base as well than a wipe. A wipe is is more aggressive in removing particles from a surface, and um, a lot of times, especially in a mechanical area, you have kind of oil mist and grease that really the particles adhere to the surface. So the microvac is not as aggressive as the wipe. Um, the good news is you can't overload these samples because ultimately the dust gets uh, suspended in an aqueous solution. So the lab can do serial dilutions. Uh, therefore, they could never overload the sample. Uh, just be careful with that because a lot of times, you know, you would get a, a result of less than 100,000 structures. And the person would say, well, what does this mean? Why is this so high? And that's right. because of that dilution situation. But that picture is actually uh, Mike and I, uh, one of our clients, a school client in Philadelphia, was uh, reactivating these large house fans because of COVID to try to increase the ventilation rates um, in the school. And they, you know, a lot of these uh, systems had been shut down, as Mike had previously talked about, for years because of asbestos. So they wanted to be sure that they weren't going to re-energize these large house fans and spread asbestos fibers throughout the school. So we did a lot of microvac sampling uh, to basically determine if it was safe to turn those on or not. And that's just a, there for a second, Joe. Go ahead, please. I just want to mention, you know, like everyone or most people do, you know, your asbestos lead mold. And, you know, I used to drive around for years with PCMs and TEMs and ghost wipes in my car. So for those of you listening out there, if you're going to, you know, expand into this sampling, you just can't take a ghost wipe and do a wipe sample. You, ne you need to get special cloths. Otherwise, it's going to be junk in, junk out. You know, so quality data is crucial to interpret the data to make these decisions. So there are special cloths that your laboratory will give you. Just don't throw in a ghost wipe and say, I think this works. Or even, you know, I remember doing dust with, you know, baby wipes and diaper wipes. So you know, make sure you get the proper media or your quality is severely lacking. Just like and the same goes with the microvac. You, you want to use a TEM cassette, not a PCM cassette. Is that accurate to say? That's correct. Yes. Okay. I usually buy sources. the carpet sampler that Rob has, but you can make your own cassette with the, with a tie gun tubing. Um, let's go back to those numbers, John, I, I, because this really is an interesting topic. Okay. Settled dust. Now, is this in a microvac or a wipe or both? Both. Either both. or. I can imagine there's been quite a bit of argument about that. Um, it seems to me that your your dust wipe is going to pick up a lot more dust and a lot more potential asbestos fibers. How do these compare? I mean, it, I'm kind of having trouble seeing that, Rob. So again, based on our experience and on some studies that have been out there that the wipes tend to find about double the amount of asbestos than a microvac. So it's okay. got a better collection efficiency uh, for the you know, reasons stated earlier. Um, but there's no differentiation right now for whether it's a wipe or a microvac. Just know that the wipes tend to yield higher results. And this is an ASTM standard, not a regulation. Is there any? That's correct. Anywhere where the regulations, where there's consideration of making this a regulation? I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of either. I even agree that non-asbestos mineral fibers cause disease to expand the asbestos family, let alone expanding <laughs> thresholds. Especially, I think they're reluctant because... There is no correlation of settled dust numbers to what does that mean for the air? You know, and, and people, maybe it's just experience where you could say, you know what, this is, there's a potential for a really bad situation. Let's recommend remediation. And, and a lot of uh, lower level consultants don't want to put their foot in that pool. 
And certainly not about, the government wants to either. I mean, if they, I can imagine where you've got legal cases, and I don't know if you've been involved in any of these, Rob or, or, or Mike, but um, someone's been accused of improper mold remediation. They cut out drywall. The, the joint compound had asbestos in it. They supposedly contaminated someone's entire house. Has this standard been um, challenged in court? Has it been used in court to either win or, or lose a case? I'm not aware. Not that I'm, not that I'm aware of. Okay. I'm, I'm we, sure we've got some sharp people listening in. I'm sure if they know, they will let me know. Uh, because but, but Joe, we do recommend that when people, you know, in their homes and they're like, I'm concerned I had a plumber do something. We're like, let's take, take the wipes. Because if it's there, it'll be found. I also want to mention uh, Don Weeks sent a text here. It should mention that John Tiffany, a colleague that many of us know, has mesothelioma as well. And that's please keep him in your thoughts. Um, well, that's that's a little scary, I think, for all of us, you know, because John's been around a long time. I'm sure he was on a lot of, you know, asbestos sites and projects. And so was I. And so were you guys. That doggone mesothelioma just pops up 40 years later. It's amazing. But let's go to halftime, John. We'll come back for the second half. We've got Rob DeMello and Mike Menz. Excellent. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology. Unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI science.org the indoor air quality association iaqa.org the iicrc a non-profit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry iicrc.org industry sponsors are aeml laboratories free shipping great pricing same day results with no rush fee aemlinc.com particles plus Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. Availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com April Air Healthy Air Healthy Home April A-I-R-E.com. and Healthy Indoors Magazine a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers healthyindoors.com Alright we're back with Rob and Mike uh, I gotta you know this, this has always puzzled me I've never been involved in one of these projects where you're looking for mercury in rubber floors. I think a lot of times it's in, in gym floors. And I'm wondering, I think you guys have done that kind of thing. Um, it seems like it would be a horribly expensive thing to, to remediate. If you do find it in there, just kind of walk us through what, what this is all about, I guess, starting with how much of a hazard is it really? I mean, you know, we used to put mercurochrome on, I don't know if that has mercury in it or not, but my buddy reminded me of it not recently. here. <laughs> so walk us through that. If you would, uh, either one of you. I'm not a toxicologist, but, okay. uh, you know, I was a radiation safety officer. And to me, one of the parallel um, aspects is, you know, there's real risk and perceived risk. And, and I'm not going to be the one to say this is a real risk, but there's there's a real concern. And, you know, I I left the MSL in 2019 because there was a local incident where there was a school district with, you know, six or six or Eight of their 12 schools had mercury in the rubber floors, and there was a large concern for cancer and other detrimental health effects. <clears throat> you know, so that, that was a, a springboard for me to rejoin industrial hygiene. And you know, there are a lot of numbers. And you know, I, I think what it comes to is 
and we deal with this every day, there's differences between occupational exposures of the healthy worker versus the exposure of your three-year-old son or daughter in a gymnasium. And, and I think that's what, you know, it, you know, children aren't little adults. Um, they're in these gymnasiums and dance floors for unknown amounts of time and their little bodies breathing a lot. You know, who knows what, what the ramifications are later. You know, we have, we have various numbers here in New Jersey, but there, California has an REL of 0.06 micrograms. You know, I don't even know if that's achievable in some of the states that are downwind of, you know, the coal mines or the coal factories generating electricity. So, you know, again, as a parent, I don't want my kids and, and grandkids breathing this stuff. And as with radiation, I'm going to follow the ALIRA principle. Let's keep exposure as low as reasonably achievable. Is it pricey? Absolutely. What? Why was it used in these products? Do you guys know? There was a catalyst when they poured it called phenylmercuric acetate that accelerated the curing and self-leveling. But what apparently the manufacturers didn't know is this PMA would break down and release mercury vapors into that space. So it's the vapors they're concerned about, not contact like a you know, dust or that it contains mercury it would be vapors of elemental mercury interesting that's an interesting one and then if you've got these mats or you know flooring with this mercury in it what, what do you do i mean can you coat it do you have to tear it all out under controlled conditions i'm not that familiar with it and you know going back to the early asbestos days you know, abatement means remove, repair, and close all those things. And people are taking abatement now as removal. And from my perspective, which is you know, fairly limited, three, four, five years, um, people are jumping in to removal that can. But I think management in place is a, a very valid option. And this is one of the gymnasiums I did here in, in South Jersey, where okay. it had elevated levels in that gymnasium. But not surprising, if you look in the back corner, there's, a, you know, I'll say a four foot by five foot piece of plywood that they put over the fresh air intake louvers. And on nice. the bonding caddy corner side, there was another one boarded up. You know, so here in New Jersey, the quote unquote magic number is 0.8 micrograms. They were around 1.0. And I, my recommendation was, hey, why don't you take those pieces of plywood off and reintroduce fresh air the way the building was designed. But the building owners had a very low risk uh, take on life. So instead, there's this community building not being used. But to me, ventilation is as with COVID-19, as with everything. You know, when I used to present, I used to say, I like to breathe 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So how representative is that 10-minute mold sample or that two-hour air sample? Um, <clears throat> ventilation is the key. And uh, unless the floor is severely damaged, which most of I've seen are not, um, you can manage it in place. Uh, recommendation of encapsulating it or co- going over it is same thing with asbestos. It's just going to make it that much harder to remove later. And the vapors will still find their way out into the space. How do you sample for this? Rob, why don't you take that? Can I take that one? I just, I'm still sore from my uh, mercury sampling job yesterday. So, (laughs) okay, good timing. (laughs) My advice for any consultants who want to uh, do mercury floor sampling for a gym floor, call me. I'll tell you what tools you need because it is is definitely physical work. So here, I don't know if you can see that. Here's my sample. So there's several layers there. And with this one's about one inch, one inch thick, you got to get all the way down to the concrete. And I had our Jerome meter, so I'm taking air samples. I did a survey first. Thankfully, the levels were below the 0.8 micrograms per cubic meter that Mike mentioned is, is our New Jersey Department of Health um, standard here. Uh, but interestingly, as I started removing my samples, I had my meter right along with me doing continuous monitoring. That... That orange layer is, is on the bottom. That's the old layer that they went over a couple of years ago. Oh. As soon as I pop that top layer off and I expose that orange layer, layer, 
my mercury meter hit, it went up to like three micrograms. So it's interesting. It was good data. You know, we're waiting for the lab results and uh, we'll, we'll help the customer figure out if they want to just manage it in place. But as Mike said, they, it, my gut feeling is um, that bottom layer is going to be the positive layer. The top layer, they may be able to scarify that and seal it, encapsulate it, and then put a new coat on top. Or they could remove the whole thing, which we did a lot of monitoring jobs last summer. It's, it's heavy duty. It's more than asbestos. The same engineering controls, except we use, in addition to the HEPA filters on the micro traps, we're going to use charcoal, activated charcoal filters. Um, but you're removing the floor, which again is not easy. They use, you know, motorized strippers. Uh, sometimes the mercury can leach into the concrete substrate and sometimes even into the soil underneath. And we did one job in New Jersey last year that we took out, well, not us, the contractor took out, I think about six to eight inches of concrete, then two inches of aggregate, and then four inches of soil all under containment. Wow. Wow. wow, And a lot of dumpsters going out as hazardous waste. I'll say that's, that's, that's an expensive project right there. Um, is I would there like a... to re- reinforce, so like this, the place Rob was yesterday, the material's in good condition, as he said, the, the vapor levels were very minimal, if any. We Last summer, we did another job in North Jersey where the condition was ripped up and, you know, there was approaching PEL exposures to the worker. Like it, it ended up being because they wanted to renovate this public gymnasium and during a renovation at real, they realized there could be mercury in this floor and you know they had osha come down on them where we had to do some exposure assessments so when hmm. those membranes are cut up larger surface area uh the, the vapor left so there there is real exposure if it's damaged i think if with proper ventilation if it's in good condition it can be managed in place indefinitely all right now the the, the big question for most people would be at this point is there Hopefully, they're no longer using a process that allows this mercury vapor to be a problem. And if so, is there a cutoff date when a school can feel a little more comfortable about, well, we got our rubber flooring after 19, you know, 99 or whatever the case may be? I don't know the exact dates, but in New Jersey, where this seems to be, you know, a, a, you know in the highlight of they instituted a, a sampling program during COVID-19. And again, I forget the dates, but it turned out those dates aren't accurate. You know, so any manufacturer can put whatever they want in as a part proprietary ingredient. So there's no magic number where, Hey, as of 2006, it was stopped using. Obviously there's a higher probability that it's not there, but the numbers that New Jersey DOH fall or the date didn't, Pan out. So I mean, you would think that people who bought this and are now spending big money removing them would go after the manufacturer. Have you seen that, Rob? Do you, are you familiar with that? Or maybe you guys don't know. I know I'm getting out kind of in the woods on this, but it just seems fascinating to me. No, I haven't seen anybody go after the manufacturers. Um, you know, it, it, I don't think it was a banned substance, the PMA. Uh, was an additive and that's a decision, a liability risk management decision that the manufacturers have to make. And I, I've heard the 2006 number again. I don't know if that's accurate, Mike. Um, It's not a hard cutoff, but that's the number that the year that we've heard where they, the manufacturers voluntarily stopped putting the PMA in their product. And I know from one of our school district clients, they had a mercury floor removed. I don't know if it was last year or the summer before. We were not involved because it was a New Jersey state managed project. But the school district had me go down and do an awareness training for their housekeeping staff because they were scared to death. And I know for a fact that that was that that building was built after 2006. But they had you know. It was a school for special needs students, you know, where they were learning motor skills and stuff. And, and it was positive. And the, the state of New Jersey came in and removed it from that child care facility. 
Very interesting. Hey, another thing that's always puzzled me is this whole PCBs in caulking thing. And I just, um, I, I can't imagine that the caulking in these windows is such a hazard that you have to spend that kind of money to remove them because of the PCBs. But you guys, again, you're not toxicologists. I'm just wondering, do you see that kind of work still? I mean, are people still checking the caulking for PCBs and asbestos in windows? Let me take that, Rob, or you want to? No, go ahead. Yeah, no one's calling us saying, hey, come check my PCB, you know, check my caulk for PCBs. You know, and the, the EPA says you don't need to do it like they would for asbestos in schools. But, you know, one of the things we have been seeing with the, the COVID money is a lot of schools around this area are improving their ventilation systems, which absolutely is a must because they're past their end of service life and window replacements. And that's where we're running into the request or our recommendation of, hey, you're, you're going to rip out these window systems you've had this caulk and this glazing and this could be the real deal where we're sampling for asbestos content and PCB content. And, and the concern being primarily the disposal of the materials is regulated. You own the waste. So that's, that's my recommendation. Again, I'm not sure what, you know, I've always, I'm, I'm amazed at science. I always question why, you know, like I, I took a sample once and it was kind of a spur of the moment and I didn't have the glass jar. So I threw the caulk in a Ziploc bag, brought it to the lab, and they said, you didn't, you didn't containerize it properly. There's going to be a disclaimer. And I'm like, this caulk has been sitting in the sunlight baking for 50 years. <laughs> I drove it 25 minutes away. I don't think I lost all the PCBs. But I'm also, even though I worked at a lab, I'm not a lab person other than do PCM analysis. So, you know, these are not my rules. I'm an applied scientist, not a research scientist. Okay. All right. Rob, did you want to add anything? <laughs> sure. Yeah. We advise our clients that, you know, be careful what you wish for, you know, don't sample unless you know what you're going to do if we get a positive, because once you go over the limit of 50, uh, the EPA now considers that an unauthorized use and you do have to uh, address it. They don't say how, when, and how fast, but now it becomes a liability. But to speak to um, the PCB levels in air, uh, we haven't seen a, a big correlation with uh, the PCB uh, in the caulks for the indoor air, but it's more about the PCB transformer uh, lighting units, ballasts that burn up. And when they burn up, then you get high levels and you get PCB dust on the surfaces and that's where I think, you know, it's more of an exposure hazard than, than the PCB on the outside of the window. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a great point, Rob. I, I appreciate that. I, I think that is something that we, we would be a lot more concerned about. Let me go back. You mentioned um, schools and COVID money. And actually, earlier in the interview, I think it was Mike mentioned that you guys had actually picked up work more in, during this COVID uh, era. And I haven't heard that from a lot of uh, assessment people. A few are getting some COVID-related work. Tell us a little bit about the COVID-related work you're seeing and also uh, a little bit about um, where you see schools putting the money uh, for this. You know, they're getting a lot of money for, for uh, COVID relief, I guess. And I'm wondering where that money's going. Well, yeah, I, I fell into the COVID thing pretty early, um, I started doing COVID screening at a construction site for a school because they got shut down. And I actually did that for 54 weeks, which was just a miserable existence, but it paid, well. <laughs> paid the bills. And, um, you know, I, I eventually consulted the client, Hey, stop paying me to come screen these workers. Temperature screenings don't work. The only thing that did work is they knew there was going to be a century there. And if they felt sick, they didn't come to work. To me, that's the value of these temperature checks. Okay. Then we went, we rolled right into, you know, dilution ventilation, you know, awareness training, uh, explaining why face masks work or don't work, explaining social distance, you know, you double your distance, you decrease your exposure by four, <clears throat> and the ventilation, you know, um, just, just talking to someone else about preventive maintenance, and schools have been underfunded for decades in the United States, and these ventilation systems 
are either inadequate or not well-maintained or haven't been maintained or they were shut off from asbestos. So we've been doing you know, a lot of you know, velocity measurements out of supply registers, discussing, you know, can you increase your filter from a MERV 8 to a MERV 12 or whatever, you know, and that we would work hand in hand with the HVAC contractor. Um, we then had to kind of counterbalance. They would increase the amount of fresh air from 15% to 25, 30, 35%. And then we had humidity and mold issues. You know, mm-hmm. they were robbing Peter to pay Paul. And, and we, we had to try to guide them as much as they wanted to listen into finding the sweet spot to you know, maximize the efficiency of the dilution ventilation for the schools that actually had forced air. Again, in Philadelphia, very old city, a lot of these you have these old house fans that are just unable to be reactivated. And the ventilation was crack a window and keep the door open. Mm-hmm. And that was the challenge, you know, where we, we tried to do some things and, you know, maybe do some genetic air sampling and stuff. But you hate to take $10,000 to do sampling when they could take $10,000 and apply it to a mitigation strategy. Like, sure. Still doing it today because, you know, this, you know, COVID. I don't know if it's here or gone. I have no idea. But a lot of these schools are now back in full and people are returning to work, more importantly. And there's still a lot of fear and apprehension uh, where we're checking out these HVAC systems. Are you getting many um, Legionella calls? There seems to be a lot of uh, press recently about, you know, buildings. You mentioned buildings that were closed. People are coming back to those buildings. Are you getting any calls for sampling for Legionella? Uh, not as much recently. Uh, about a year ago, we definitely did because uh, a lot of facilities shut down because of COVID. And then uh, they wanted to consider, you know, should we test our, our water now that's been stagnant all, you know, all year for uh, Legionella. Uh, so we did a lot of that. Uh, we did have one outbreak in a state facility here in New Jersey that we, we helped them with. But as of late, it, you're right. There has been a lot of, uh, press, but we haven't seen a lot of an uptick in calls for Legionella sampling. I think the water treatment companies have really kind of wrapped up that market and kind uh-huh. of taken that away from the consulting side. Actually, I agree okay. with that, Rob, because the job I just wrapped up doing a ventilation assessment, we were discussing the amount of fresh air being introduced and, and that HVAC company said, oh yeah, we already tested for Legionella. We have the program in place. So uh, I guess it falls under two intersecting disciplines. Fascinating. All right, let's go to the roundup. The roundup is brought to you by April Air, providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at April, A-I-R-E dot com. All right. So let's, Cliff, first, I want to make sure that if you have any questions or follow-ups, you get in here. Uh, just just one question. Um, I'm wondering if you guys can give our listeners any tips on handling uh, odor complaints uh, in buildings. Do you have a strategy or, you know, what's worked for you or what hasn't worked? Just you know, possibly some tips if you could. You want to take that one, Mike? That's a that could be a whole lot. Oh, yeah, you know, the the odor <laughs> investigation is always challenging, and, and boy, I, I like occupational settings a lot more than this transient odor thing because there's a process to be involved. But uh, you know, I, I think it falls under that preventive maintenance uh, task a lot, and um, the the total lack of understanding of HVAC systems. Um, you know, I've been getting a lot of these. The first thing we always do is we want to come out and do a visual inspection to check the house, check the HVAC system. What sort of filters are you using? Are you not using? Um, and then we have to do the sampling if need be, you know, so we would go to TO 15. Um, but we're, we've done a lot of that. And I, I literally just did one recently in a, a, a mainline apartment building where they had these transient nasty odors and um, I, I, I was happy that I sobbed it very quick. I thought it was going to be because their, their child was off to college and the, their drains were dried out. But it turns out 
they decided to put their cat litter pan right next to the air handling unit, which didn't have a cover or a filter. So every time the cat did its business, these odors were distributed mm-hmm. through the house. Uh, I don't even want to think about it, but I was happy that uh, I had made that observation. I did some smoke tubes and it did what it was supposed to do. It distributed that air throughout the building. So, you know, try to get them to see the trees in the forest and understand airflow, which can be a challenge. All right. So for years, Rob, you were kind of, uh, looking at, you know, companies and, and trends within the industry. And I'm wondering if you could maybe give our, our audience uh, your thoughts on, on where the industry is headed in general. I mean, industrial hygiene, IEQ, uh, what may be some hot topics in the future we haven't covered here today? Sure. So definitely there's more, uh, I think, emphasis on awareness, environmental issues. You know, we have uh, PFAS is definitely – kicking in EPA is passing a lot of uh, new regulations for PFAS as well as states. Uh, The lead, we all know the lead standard for buildings, indoor air quality. Now something to watch for is the well standard. And, you know, if there's going to be general adoption of the well standard, which is both air and drinking water, which I like, uh, that's going to be, you know, a whole new emerging area for consultants like ourselves to, to help our customers uh, comply with and achieve. You know, overall in the industry, what I'm seeing also is a lot of consolidation, both on the lab side and on the consulting side. Uh, And I think this uh, merger and acquisition activity is largely driven by um, private equity coming into our industry. You know, environmental is is, sounds great. It makes everybody feel good, sustainability, green. Uh, so a lot of these uh, PE firms like to have in their portfolio these green companies, sustainability. Also, food is very hot. So they're just looking to gobble up companies very quickly. And, and that's what's driving the M&A uh, market, in my opinion. Interesting. Uh, any, Mike, would you like to add anything there? No. <laughs> that's why I heard with Rob. <laughs> that's why you got Rob on board, huh? All right. It, it wasn't like for my that. good looks. <laughs> you can beat in basketball one on one. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Oh that. man. Well, I, I tell you what. Um, there's been a lot of. Uh, there's one more topic we didn't really touch on that I think is an important current topic, and maybe we can do it real quick. That's silica. Um, are you guys, you know, with the new silica standards, are you seeing more interest in, in um, uh, sampling and and maybe even uh, guidance on managing silica? You take that, Ron. Yeah, um, no, it was obviously, it was very hot back in 2017, 18, 19, when OSHA was implementing the uh, the new PEL and the new standard in a phased approach. You know, the, the construction industry was first, then general industry, then uh, the fracking industry was last. And, there was obviously a flurry of activity. Everybody wanted to do their, you know, negative exposure assessments. But then uh, the advent of table one that was in the standard is basically what OSHA did for the construction industry to say, if you use this, this tool with this apparatus, either wet method or HEPAVAC, and you, you, you know, you're consistent with your work practices, you're good. You don't have to do any sampling or compliance monitoring. So, you know, we did a couple of silica jobs last year, but it's really dropped off. Maybe we're an anomaly, but I think everybody is pretty much set now with respect to silica. They either have their exposure monitoring done or they're complying with table one. We, we just did one where we talked about that. And he's like, we're using table one, but since we need exposure for this and that, throw some silica in also. But yeah, it's it's it it hit its peak and it's behind us. It's all table one based. You know, there were a couple of things you guys mentioned. That, like, I just got a comment on well. Um, we did a show with one of the well people, and it looks like that is catching on. Um, but Rob, when you mentioned um, acquisitions, I just wondered. You know, you were you did this for EMSL. You looked at companies to buy. What? 
what recommendations would you give to people who are looking to position their company for sale? Um, what was important to you when you were looking at these companies? Sure. Well, you know, right now with, with, you know, COVID and, you know, high turnover and people not returning to work, a lot of it is about the people. I mean, assets are nice. You know, we always looked at contracts are important, you know, long-term contracts. Uh, but it's really about the staff and the people because it's so hard to, to hire and retain talent. So I think that's very important when it comes to acquisitions as part of the factor of looking at and evaluating a company is, you know, who are your people? What are their qualifications? What's their longevity with the company? Uh, they're keeping up with their, with their training and um, career development. Uh, these things are very important, especially in our, you know, the market that we're in now because, because of COVID-related um, employment issues. Obviously, have a clean balance sheet. I mean, that's important, as always. But yeah, yeah. In some way, you make a little money every year or whatever. But I don't know. Are they always looking for financial, or are they looking maybe for you know? Um, I've always been, you know, content is king. You know, are they looking for content from people? Are they looking for you know? You got to have strong financials. You already mentioned the people. It, it depends on the buyer. If it's a strategic buyer, meaning the same type of company is buying a competitor, they have they look at things differently. You know, they they want the people, they want the contracts, they want maybe to get into a market that they're not into. But then, if the buyer is a, is a PE firm, it's all top line growth. All they care about is sales. How how much top line growth can you add to our, to our portfolio? And then some of them, like I said, they want to diversify their portfolio. They they want to. They want to get into food. They want to get into solar or engineering. You know, they, they like to have that diversification of their portfolio. Excellent, guys. Hey, before we go, um, each of you, is there anything you'd like to add before we go? Anything we missed? Any final thoughts for our audience? Let's start with you, Rob, since I've got you up now. Just for me, you know, thank you for this opportunity. We hope this was beneficial. Uh, it was I enjoyed it, and uh, certainly my thoughts and prayers are with John Tiffany. Uh, he was my professor at grad school for my oh. indoor air quality course back in 1992. Uh, he partnered with uh, Howard Bader. He did the mechanical side and John did the uh, IEQ side. So that's how I learned to do mold sampling back in 92 was with John Tiffany. So my sincere uh, thoughts and prayers go with him. Okay. Thank you for that. All right, let's go to you, Mike. Final thoughts. Again, thank you for having us. Uh, it, it was very pleasurable. Uh, good warm up for the EIA presentation we're going to be doing next week, or I'm going to be doing. So I'm happy to get back into the public speaking. Uh, but yeah, my only closing thoughts is you know, one of the day in and day out things we do is air quality and mold. And I'd really like somebody to publicize the ERMI tool, which should not be used. I, I've seen uh, companies locally where the, I talked to the client and they're like, I have this ERMI test that this company did. And I'm like, you know, that's not a validated method. And they, how did they do it? They did it wrong. So they're using a, a method that shouldn't be used and they're not doing it right. And <laughs> I, I undo the damage that these people did. And I guess maybe that's the danger of a certain discipline, not being regulated on a, on a license basis. Cause you know, in New Jersey, it's not molds, not licensed and it's buyer beware. And there's a lot to beware about for the buyer. Uh, so <clears throat> I just want to voice that pet peeve because it's, it's been coming at me in multiple directions on a high basis. And it's, it's kind of amazing. And I can't figure it out, but uh, you know, well, we bring them out and, and we, you know, get them back on the right path. I think that's a great way to finish this up because I know a lot of people in our audience are going through the same thing, Mike. It's, uh, it's just, um, one of those things it's kind of gotten into the uh out into the public and into the medical community at least parts of it and that's um really caused uh, some headaches for some of our people in the audience but uh we do appreciate you guys joining us um, great to see both of you again it's been a long time glad you're doing well the company's doing well and uh hope to talk to you again so oh, by the way mike where's the eia going to be this year i what is it eia yes. yeah where's that at phoenix Phoenix. Oh, we're at the Phoenix. I'm used to them being in South Carolina for some reason, but uh, 
Gentlemen, thanks again for joining us. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to Mike Menz and Rob DeMala for joining us from Indoor Environmental Concepts. Thanks to John, you got to have faith at the controls. My co-host, Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, most importantly, our growing group of uh, loyal listeners. By the way, great show again next week, the second in our series on IEQ founding fathers, Don Fugler from the uh, Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation, retired now, but uh, definitely one of the founding fathers. Looking forward to talking to him about some of the early research and uh, how things are looking in the indoor environmental quality world. So we'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 